Hello and welcome to Off the Record episode three. We've really enjoyed your input so far on the first two episodes, and we're going to keep coming at you hopefully on a weekly schedule from now on. You can find us at offtherecord.fm for show notes to keep uh, updated and a running guide of this show as we push on. Uh, we're going to just start things off with a little follow-up uh, from Jesse on last week's episode. So last week I said something that apparently wasn't fully true. Um, I sadly cited a Bob Lefsitz article saying that One Direction had only had one top 40 hit, um, but that's actually not true. They've had four songs in the top 40, but what I did read that's very interesting about them that still makes this point is that most of their airplay has come from Sirius XFM, Ed, that I kind of knew this before, but that just because you get into the top 40 does not mean you get added to every market's top 40 radio station that a lot of time they're actually playing just the top 25 songs and some songs that have fallen off the charts that are still popular. So the interesting thing about One Direction is they haven't had as much radio airplay for a band that usually seems about as big as them. Like, you know, you think about a band that just had like a movie come out in theaters, you know, Katy Perry, The Beeb, like whoever else, <laughs> the Beeb. where they have these things, they usually have much, much more radio airplay. The One Direction is a band that was kind of made not from that. It was from YouTube videos and Sirius XFM. So the point kind of remains the same, but we should clarify for fact that they did have more than one top 40 song, contrary to what Bob Lefsitz wrote in his article that I cited. And if 2014 proves anything, it's that Lefsitz continues to wane. <laughs> It's true. It's it's really. I, I I should have known better than to cite him as a off fact. But what can you do? Uh, so the most interesting thing that happened this past week, I think, was uh, sort of a vinyl pressing uh, situation that seemed very exciting, uh, and then kind of kind of went wrong, and kind of went on some weird tangents from there. Enjoy the ride records, uh, a label mostly known, I think, at this point for just kind of reissues all across sort of the pop punk to emo to even ska board um they did a secret release and it was uh cartels chroma an album that turns 10 next year many have wanted it on vinyl for years uh everything seemed really kosher about it people started to flock to buy it i bought it a lot of my friends bought it and then within an hour or within a few hours uh the band started tweeting on their twitter account that uh you know, they didn't sanction the release and they had nothing about it. And they kind of went on this rant that seems kind of, conf- it wasn't the most well-educated Twitter stream of thought process, which is, of course, uh, one of the things that are potentially harmful about Twitter for bands. But nevertheless, it sort of cast a large cloud over the pressing and the release. And many people were asking if they could give refunds and, and, and so on from there. Uh, and then following that, uh, the band issued a statement to Absolute Punk um, and to sort of condense it as much as possible from from both sides admit that Enjoy the Ride reached out to Cartel uh, to press the vinyl. There was a conversation. The conversation sort of died on the band's half. They stopped responding and then Enjoy the Ride had already secured a license from the original label and went ahead with the pressing anyway. Um this is obviously not the first time we've seen something like this, uh, right, Jesse? Like, it just yeah, I mean, it's well, more well, it more, was more and more as of late. It's more and more as of late. What was even funnier too is that the same thing kind of happened with Mars Volta this week, and 
um, it just highlights something that I think a lot, like, you know, one, there's two tropes, I think, that are very common in this, is one, there's no music business school that says the exact process of how you go through this. No one has a white paper that instructs you how to go through this process. And then, um, secondly, this is another illustration of the thing that I don't think a lot of people always understand, which is that a label owns the actual recording that you did, but they don't own the songs. Um, and you're free to always re-record those songs in another way, um, on another label or any carnation, like, you know, band like Def Leppard, who's re-recording their back catalog, like, and, you know, you get into all these silly things, but the one thing is, is you don't need a band's permission to reissue a record. Absolutely. And so it's a really interesting process. It's, mm -hmm. uh, or at least a process that I think is worthy for a lot of fans to know, as this is clearly going to become more and more of an issue as the years progress. And there's no one better to explain it than you since you've been reissuing tons and tons of records lately. Yeah, and so we went through an interest, uh, a similar process, certainly. Uh, so the a Bad Timing record started with a vinyl reissue from Acceptance, and then we've done another one with Sony, Columbia, uh, for Valencia. And so how the process works is it has nothing to do with the band. Uh, it can, but it really doesn't have to have anything to do with the band. And whether or not that's good or bad, we can get into that. But in terms of how the actual process works, you have to find a representative at the label. Then you have to email them and you have to try to correspond with them to see if the license is available to press. So the license meaning I want to press uh, Phantoms by Acceptance on vinyl. Uh, can we do that? Are you going to allow us to do that? And then uh, labels have to typically pay a fee per a license fee so that's one overarching fee and then if these uh bands are on major labels you often have to pay publishing rights you, you, yeah so clarify this when you say the labels you're saying you the reissuer has to pay a fee to right. the label we as bad timing records have to pay columbia records x dollars for a fee to license a record on vinyl and then there are typically other fees like publishing. Uh, so that means a band gets a, a publishing rate per song. And if you sell a thousand records, that means a band gets paid some, a, a, fine, a, a secure amount of money a thousand times per song. Uh, and that amount is usually point, uh, point 0.98 cents per song, I believe. That sounds, sounds close enough, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, of course, then the label... The label reissuing the record, like Bad Timing Records, also has to uh, incur the pr uh, the price of manufacturing and selling and mail order and all of that. But that that's a little that's something else altogether. So, assuming that the parent label Sony or Columbia agrees to the reissue, then you go from there. One very important thing is finding out if labels have granted licenses to other parties. Uh, because, you know, I think we've seen this too. Sometimes a label will grant two different other record labels a license to reissue a record. And then suddenly, you at the same time, you have two labels pressing a thousand copies of this album when maybe only 800 are going to get bought. And a lot of people are going to end up getting kind of screwed over. Um, so what, what I think is interesting about this one is that it does seem like uh, a license, two licenses were granted, one to enjoy the ride, and it looks like Cartel was working on one of their own. Uh, and so there's definitely blame to be put on to the original label. I think they were on Epic 
Um, uh, yeah, that's right? right. Yeah, I think they're on Epic. At least for, I think they were for Ban in the Bottle. Um, yeah, well, that would have been the, the stable label that reissued it from the militia group. Right. Um, right. So, so what happened here is, it's there's kind of a lot on. This is just a standard process of how major labels work when reissuing vinyl. They don't really care, right? It, it's yeah. it's some it's some amount of money, and it's really it's not um, for Columbia, right? It's not what Katy Perry is bringing in for them. It's just yeah. some some amount of money that helps them buy two more computers a year or something like that. Oh, and also they they have things in their contract that they have to do due diligence to keep pursuing income for these things. So if somebody calls up and is offering a legitimate offer to very standard demands, a bad could, if they found out that they were denied for that, they could say that they're being too lazy and they're not pursuing offers for them. And that could null and void a lot of contracts. I mean, that's not every contract, but that's a lot of contracts. So it's actually with the label as menial as these few thousand dollars are, um, or minuscule as these few thousand dollars are, um, you know, they have to do it just out of obligation in their contract. Right, and, you know, and technically, these bands are also getting paid from these, right? And in, in theory, if they if Cartel has recouped on their original contract with Epic, and we can't say if they have or not, then they still get royalties from both publishing and, and the original license. Um, but I do think as a person, as both a fan and someone that owns a label that has done reissues and will continue to do reissues, it's all you always want to have the band on the same page for so many reasons. Yes. Um, so for acceptance, we had a really difficult time getting in contact with the band. We were moving forward with everything and we had reached out to the singer a bunch of times and we just got nothing back. And you know, we ended up reaching out to uh to a mutual friend to put us in contact with the band and it turned out they were on board and we went for it and it was all really exciting and thank god um because we didn't want to run into a situation where the band was not happy with us and then fans wouldn't buy the album um but in a situation situation like this where cartel had actually been teasing that they were going to put this album on vinyl for years like there was a bad taste put in your mouth do you do you personally do you just want the vinyl, Jesse, or would you? I, no, I, I actually think that there's a big thing that the artist should be able to work. Because, like, here's a great example: is um, I remember at one point, Mightier Than the Sword was going to reissue um, the first Benzinger's album that I produced, and um, he was saying it kind of matter of factly. I didn't even realize that I was the one who recorded it, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm pretty sure, and you know, my memory says that we recorded two extra songs that we actually dropped from that record, but we did finish them. Um, and we were just like, ah, these aren't, you know, they did, they were still good songs, they just didn't fit the vibe of that first record. I'm like, you know, you might be able to uh, put these on the reissue and make it extra special. Like, you know, you're going to sell a lot more copies if you have two bonus tracks. And so getting in touch with the band and you know, like even finding out things like that, getting the band to tweet and Facebook about it if they have social network, like, all these things are really good reasons to talk to the band. Like, is there something, was there something wrong with the original pressing that you'd like to correct? Is, was the mastering job terrible and you never really liked it? Can you remaster it? Like, you know, we've been doing some really cool things like, uh, for you guys reissues, like, you know, like that acceptance record had a really high quality master. We were able to take that master and bring out some details. Like, you know, I've listened to that record. Probably one of the most of the records in my life I've listened to. And, 
we found so many cool things that I can hear on that vinyl pressing that aren't on that original release. And that's really important and a really cool thing to do for fans. So if we're going to do these things like where we're reissuing, we should also be doing a service to archive it in a way that really brings something special to the table. Yeah, and I think the, I think one of the larger issues is is just that at the end of the day, this is still a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when Cartel signed that contract 10 years ago or whatever, no one was thinking about vinyl, certainly, you know? But that's not yeah. even the thing. Like, at the end of the day, w- whatever major label it is, it's, it's still a business for them, and they still care about selling records. Um, and if Enjoy the Ride or Bad Timing or whatever the label is can sell a thousand more records, that's great for the business of the major label. And the, I think the viewpoint that the labels, the larger, the major label see it is, hey, they're just selling albums through us. Uh, it's great that we can sell a thousand records of this album that has only sold 200 a year in the last four years or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, this is great. It doesn't really matter what the band wants because it's our pro, it's literally we own it and we can do mm-hmm. what we want with it. Um, and do I think it would be great, honestly, if if uh, the major labels would reach out to the bands to make sure everything was kosher. But I don't really think that's a likely outcome ever to well, expect. You know, the, the the other big thing is is that usually anybody who is dealing with that band five six years later isn't employed at the oh, label anymore. Or, yeah, Especially if a ten years label, ten yeah, years yeah. later, they every no, like no one yeah. might be there from. The... And, and at that, if they are still there, they're in a high enough position to not care about this. Right. And and the and, thing is, it's really such a minuscule thing, right? Like, what's yeah. a thousand records to a major label? It's nothing. Yeah, and like even if it's a large indie that you're like doing a reissue from the that's now just defunct, like you know. I used to work at a, um, you know, a large indie in the 90s called Go-Kart, and we owned um, Wreckage Exit, and I remember there was a conversation, um, Nick from Limited Run and I were talking about how somebody should reissue this band Silent Majority, because they're, like, so great influential, and people would love them today, but, like, when I got to, I wrote to Greg from Go-Kart, who used to control the Wreckage Exit, and he's like, I don't even know who controls that catalog anymore, and, like, you know, it's that funny thing of, like, the band's not going to get contact because the person pro- who probably handles that stuff barely even knows who to call at this point. Right. And never mind, the band might have went through seven managers by that point, and they were mostly dealing with the manager, and then that manager totally hates the band. And, you know, it's really bad, but, you know, you can get in touch, and there's really good benefits to getting in touch. Like, this is an artist. You want their work to be something that... You want your reissue to be something that is a part of their vision and something they're very happy with. Because that's a bad thing to do to an artist you respect and love. And odds are, I hope you're doing these reissues because you love them. I know right. you and guys that's, do that's these That's the other thing. That's the yeah. other thing, right? It's like, I'm sure the guy at Enjoy the Ride loves Cartel. You know, or mm-hmm. if, you know, you know, I don't mind saying, like, bad timing. Uh, we, had, we had inquired about reissuing this record, and it was already taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were to have done it, it's because Thomas and I really love Chroma. And mm-hmm. we, of course, would have reached out to the band and because uh, we really love the record and so i think that's also kind of a just an obvious bummer regarding it it's you never want to you never want to cause a problem with a band you love or loved or or want more people to love you know um and kind of on that line a lot of people ask bad timing 
uh, what our 003 was, and, and I'm not going to say what it was, but we had to cancel it out of a very similar situation like this, actually. Um, mm -hmm. We licensed a record from a major label. Uh, we triple-checked, actually, uh, to make sure no one else had a license for it um, because it was a kind of a high... It was going to be a really big release, frankly. Yeah, and, it was a very we popular got, we record. Got so far to the point where we were about to send it to the plant. Uh, we had a, we had a, you map, you re, yeah. you remastered it. We had a lacquer made. Uh, it was going to be, it was, you know, it's going to be a really great release. I had been waiting for six months to do it. Uh, and then we emailed the band uh, and they said, holy shit the label gave us a license too. And we also triple checked that no one else had been given a license. And we, we backtracked and figured out we were both given licenses within like a week of each other. Wow. And the thing at these major labels is, is that they have different, they have more than one uh, like reissue and licensing department, which of course is just like some bureaucracy nightmare, right? Like yeah. you know, <laughs> just have it all under one roof. And yeah. you know, we, we had spent a, you know, we had spent a good amount of money kind of getting all this stuff together and we we didn't even try to fight with the band. We were just like, yeah, go for it. Like, obviously, we're going to let you do it, you know, and but it was a really hard decision. And it just kind of goes to show like you always have to double check. Uh, we didn't want to reach out to the band six months earlier because we wanted to sort of have our shit together a little more before going to them and saying, hey, are you on board for this? What can we do together? And then we yep. went to them with all that information. They said, hey. We're actually looking to release it within a week of when you were. Uh, are you guys okay with giving it up? And we said, yeah, like that's a bummer, but yeah. Um, I think the interesting side to this too is that Cartel, Mars Volta, and this band that will remain nameless that we're talking about that you almost did all have their own labels. And that's the other thing is, is that we're getting to this thing that every band's getting the memo that they should have their own label. And so they're able to, they want to be able to get that check. And yeah, I mean, there's, a lot and of, there's potentially a lot of money in vinyl, you know, and yeah. it's really, it's really great for all that involved. The margins are great. And sometimes it's a shame to see those margin get abused, whether it's, you know, on a retailer site or a smaller label. Um, it's part of the hard thing. You know, we try to price everything really fairly on bad timing, um, especially, uh, you know, if it's a license or something where uh, it's like the release we did with Knuckle Puck where it's a 50-50 split. But, you know, it's always kind of hard to know the prices on what vinyl costs and to see another uh, to see another label, you know, charge 20 more dollars than the cost was or something like that, you know. Totally. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a clearly profitable thing. And it's great for bands to be able to potentially have that profit now, um, mm -hmm. especially for bands that are touring currently. You know, it's so much more valuable than a $5 CD obviously is. Um, well, well, bands that are touring currently are bands that have moved on from music and but but are trying to make mortgage payments in a career that they're just starting off on one foot. That's a nice check to get a leg up on. And, you know, I like, you know, obviously I wrote a book encouraging every band to have their own label, but like, you know, there's something cool too about the artist owning it as much as, you know, I celebrate. It's great that you guys do this business as well, but like, there's part of me that really empathizes with a band that wants to control their back catalog. And I think that that's a great thing about the modern music business is that you can do that, you can profit from it, and you can easily sell it. 
Absolutely. And uh, I guess the only other thing on this topic, as, as you mentioned several times, Mars Volta sort of tweeted out this week that um, their a few of their records had been reissued on vinyl by a company called Music on Vinyl that uh, are probably most infamously known to anyone that could be listening to this by the company that put the Devil and God or Raging Inside Me sticker on the actual brand new vinyl jacket last winter. Um, mm -hmm. But they've also reissued hundreds of records and all, as far as we know, legally through the original label. Uh, and I, I kind of gave Mars Volta a little snark in a property Zach headline. They use the word bootleg. Uh, and a bootleg is very different from going to the label that owns the music or owns the masters and licensing that product for them. Because again, like I said earlier, like, unfortunately, one way or another, like it is a business and it is a product, right? Mm -hmm. um, but so I think, I think we do kind of need like a term of what to call well, it. I, the, 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 we don't need a term. It's very easy. Unsanctioned. Done. That's right. what it is. You win. You, you um, got it. All good. Yeah. Bootleg is not the right word. Bootleg means, you know, that's, that's the... Uh, bootleg is like channel orange. Right, <laughs> like like all yeah, that. Yeah, well, well, like like the lady on the corner who's selling DVDs that are just in sleeves that have Xerox covers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or the or the gentleman. I don't want to. You know, I think they're mostly gentlemen. You know, not my neighbor. Usually, usually a lady, a lady, a lady on the corner who just yells the price at you as you look at each one. That's a good price. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think that's a good time to uh, welcome in our first sponsor, uh, Limited Run. Limited Run is an easy-to-set-up, direct-to-fan solution for labels and artists. Uh, if you want to sign up, it'll just take you minutes to start selling uh, with both PayPal and credit card options. Limited Run specializes in great features like cart limiting, digital street date solutions, digital and physical bundles, and, and so much more. Uh, Cart limiting is just one of those really cool features. Um, the best way I can explain it is if you're a label and you do really cool vinyl variants uh, and you have so, some... So by, var by variants, you mean different colors or different... Yeah, let's say, you, let's say you have a pressing of a thousand records uh, and you have 100 of a really cool limited color and then 300, 400, whatever to equal a thousand. If you don't want one kind of asshole of a fan buying five copies of your limited to 100 record just limit it to two two per customer one per customer get the you know get your product in the hands of your right fans and you know don't lose potential money to trolls on ebay uh limited run is a service that i use for bad timing records and uh, one of the bands i manage knuckle puck used for the web store it's a product that i think both jesse and i recommend to yeah, everyone I, I, every band that the way i put it a lot of the time to bands it's like every band where they ask how to sell merch i say do this don't go with a, one of those big companies self-fulfill your merch which we can get into much more in a future episode uh, but they're the perfect medium between big cartel where it doesn't have enough good features and top spin where it's just too ife limited run lets you keep all your merch pro profits um and you just pay a, a monthly fee for what you do on there and uh yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's I, a great, it's a, it's a great it's, platform. It, it's great to have them as a sponsor because we both really, really love this product. Yeah, go to limitedrun.com for more, and thank you for sponsoring off the record. Uh, so the next thing that sort of plays in what we discussed just a bit ago regarding vinyl is sort of how you market releases, um, vinyl releases 
in particular, or even pre-orders. Uh, there's a little interesting conversation on Twitter that sort of highlighted how Midtown uh, reissued a 10-year release of Forget What You Know. It was, you know, really cool, double double LP, I believe even 45 RPM maybe. Um, I, I picked up a copy and it, it looks it looks great. Um, but a lot of fans sort of expected it to sell out in a minute or an hour. And it kind of took all day for about a thousand copies. Um, and there was sort of this thing of, well, how are a lot of these younger bands selling, you know, how are they going through a whole stock of vinyl in, in just hours when it can take a band like Midtown that all these people clearly love and begged for a reunion? How can it take all day? And to me, I don't really think it has anything to do with the band. Obviously, you need to like the band to buy the vinyl, but let's just assume that that's a fact. I think so much of it comes down to marketing, to taking advantage of the excitement, excitement around a release, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, you know, the, there's something I talk a lot about in my book uh, that, like, you shouldn't be trying to hyper-release till people can buy it. And... Um, you know, it's one thing to say this is going on sale tomorrow, but, like, bad enthusiasm when they hear a song and they're really into that, that's what sell re sells records. Saying, hey, you can buy this two months from now after you release the single and it's been sitting on MTV for a, a month. In this internet day and age, in a, a month, the fan probably moved on and doesn't care anymore and probably isn't as enthusiastic about it. And I think that's one of the things is, like, when you talk about this knuckle puck thing, you know, Kids are just rabidly enthusiastic about the band right now. Whereas that Midtown record, that record was really cool 10 years ago or whenever it came out, but it's not so much these days for them. So it's not going to be at the top of their list. To, like, I need this right now. Yeah. And it's really important to me. Um, someone at a label told me, I think just a really something in passing that I kind of, that kind of just stood out <coughs> to me. It's like, if someone wants something, Give them to give them the chance to buy it right away, you know. Um, yes. Or tell them when they can buy it, so they will set a reminder too. You know, it's you know I don't I don't I really want to buy uh, the new album from Band X that just streamed a song that I've been waiting for three years to hear, right? Mm -hmm. And don't make me wait some not announced amount of time to buy it because I may not see the reminder the next time, you know. There's so much about that initial announcement. It's going to have the most eyes probably all at once. Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, you I, need to strike while it's hot. Don't let someone not buy what they want. Well, I, and the way I put it in the book is like, you know, one of the worst things that musicians or la small labels do is they imitate what they see the biggest bands do. So, like, you're imitating the Killers or U2 or Metallica and doing a 90-day lead-up to your record. But when you're a band that no one really knows, that's not the way to do it. Is like you want to catch all that enthusiasm and let that buy button be right there. If that if you're in the business of that, and we're all in the business of music consumption. So even if it's not a buy button, it's just that now it's on Spotify, now it's on Bandcamp. You don't wanna have it be a thing that like they now have to wait 90 days. Like one of the big things when uh I was managing Man Overboard was is like when we would do releases, we would all we would not stream a song a month before. The song came out when you could order the record or the day the record came out, one or the other. And we would not like make it so that we couldn't capitalize on the enthusiasm that we had right then and there. Cause that, you know, absolute punk and property is act post is gonna drive a lot more traffic than our socials would when we when 
they were a smaller band and they only had 10,000 yeah, likes or something. it's really important for the smaller things. And in this case, Midtown is a small band because they don't have crazy social stats or whatever, you know, because they haven't yep. been a band in 10 years. And so when all you do to promote a release is put out an Instagram-sized flyer, it's not enough, you know? And, and I, th- I think uh, Bad Timing sort of faced an int- uh, a similar scenario when we launched with Acceptance people knew who Thomas and I were and people knew what Property Zach or Absolute Punk was, but, you know, we had no stock in a record label. There was no reason that anyone should trust us to buy us. And again, Acceptance hadn't been a band in eight years or something like that, and they didn't really have any social networking either. So how, you know, we had to sort of make a spectacle of it so people would buy it, you know? So two days or the weekend before we put the release up, we sort of sent test presses to our friends and they teased, you know, they teased lyrics from acceptance and no one confirmed it, but it was just kind of like, oh my God, like, let me listen to this band this weekend. I forgot about them. Oh, I love this band. This band is great. Like people were thinking of acceptance and then we announced it on Monday and we said, hey, we're a label. That's exciting. Also, our first release is this, is this record, this, you know, great record by acceptance. We're putting it on sale tomorrow at one o'clock or whatever time it was one o'clock be there you know and we really didn't expect it to sell how well it did and you know we sold out in four hours uh i don't think we would have sold out in four hours if we didn't do what we did in terms of that little bit of marketing push or you know whatever beforehand i i, I agree with you and it made it so it was a conversation there was speculation there was tweeting and then another thing though you guys didn't use you guys did some interviews which is another reason like we didn't get into about having the band be involved is how good is it to have a band doing interviews and talking about this release? Like, you know, like, um, slid to, we talked about last week, like, you know, they're on every podcast. They're doing tons of interviews now about this deluxe box that they do. And I'm sure that's helping them. Yeah. The band, the band, the band also just sees so much love from, you know, a band like acceptance or even slint. Obviously a great example. Like no one cared seemingly about this music the whole time they broke up. And then they get back together and it's like, oh, wow, like people really like this. I can't, I can't believe a thousand copies sold, you know, like that's kind of what the acceptance guys reacted to us. They were like, this is incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there is a thing too, is like, you know, when you're doing beloved records, yes, there's some people who are still carrying a flame for it. Like I carry a flame for that acceptance record, but it really helps to have, um, a, to, to have the band on your side and be able to do a big press spectacle about it. Yeah, and I don't know, just having the track record is really important too, I think. Um, it, was a, it was a really good way to start off, but you know, not everyone gets a perfect situation like that, so you kind of just have to do all you can to make, to sort of uh, try to prepare for a big impact. Um, and, you know, we've continued to, we found for Bad Timing that the model that has worked uh, for reissues or releases that have been out for at least, you know, a few months that do an announce, announce on a Monday and put for sale on a Tuesday because it gets people excited because for the announce, a lot of people are going to see it, but everyone might not see it at the same time. So if we give them 24 hours and say, hey, this is going to go on sale 24 hours from now, everyone can be there at the same time. And if, you know, again, like to to give a, a little props to limited run. Like if you, if you're on a platform that can handle all that mad rush of traffic, like you're fine. And it's really important yeah. to sort of set, I think for customers as well, to just set 
or for consumers rather to just set a like good example and make sure everyone knows all the details about how they can get what they want and not have to like run through loops to get it, you know? And I think you just made a very good point too about like the putting out the word that this is going to happen the next day. One of the things I think that people miss a lot of marketing and like um, I've had some friends remark to me about the way I market everything I do is I don't put on, you know, I have a lot of different social channels and I don't put my announcement up on every one of them on the day it happens. I actually space it out on a couple of different ones because a lot of people who, you know, of the people who follow me will follow me on a couple of different channels. I make sure that, you know, if I'm the type of person, there's sometimes like a Wednesday, I'm too, you know, last week, uh, we had a band in the studio. I barely got on the internet on Thursday and I might've missed a lot of news. So I try to make sure that on a couple different days that you're seeing this news is going to happen. And I think that that's a really big thing for rollout is we have to remember that sometimes somebody has a final and they just turn off the internet for the day or would have a lot of work or something. So it's really important to space that out and not just make it this one day splash thing. Cause that's the big complaint of the internet these days is that your news for one day and then you're totally irrelevant the next day. Exactly. Yeah. It's a real, it's definitely a really hard balance. And, you know, I see that from the press side of, you know, doing properties act stuff. It's just, uh, so many people try to squeeze everything down your throat in a day and then you may not hear for it, you know, for months again. And it's kind of like, you, you cut, you maybe could have drawn this out a little, or it's the reverse where it's just, you know, maybe instead of doing one thing every three months, you could have you could have put it a little more together so people don't forget. It's a real, you know, some things work differently for their bands, and you know, there's no one set model. But mm -hmm. with every band being different, I think every band can have a model for themselves, uh, or every label, or every whatever kind of product or piece of art you are displaying. Uh, it's a great point. Yeah. Um, and this would be a good time for another small sponsor break. Uh, we'd like to thank Card Included. Card Included is the only self-serve download card service around. For just a few dollars, bands and labels can secure large amounts of dollar cards with no sign-up necessary. Uh, so you can. So, so when you say self-service download, um, what does that that mean? Since you've used this service as a label and customer a bit more than me, I've only used it to download music. Yeah, so that means uh, you know those little vinyl cards, uh, those cards you find in your vinyl uh, for downloading music. Uh, card included uh, on the for the bands and labels using it. You go to cardincluded.com. You upload the music you want on your download card. You can upload album artwork, logos to the download cards if you want to make it a little more special than just sort of a wavy piece of paper. And then you can be ready to print a PDF of all your download cards to cut and stuff your vinyl with in, in just minutes. Um, and it's, you know, it's great for everyone all around. It helps, uh, depending on the download cards you uh, print out, uh, labels can collect information regarding where uh, the fans are for better tour routing and, and things like that. Um, so go to cardincluded.com for more. And thank you for sponsoring Off The Record. It's a really great service that you know, bad timing has used and will continue to use for vinyl releases for bands that we have on tour releasing new music. Because uh, so many people, obviously the vinyl's great and people buy that to, of course, listen. But mostly, I think, at this point, to just support the bands they want to go see on tour and they're going to want that music to download later. And this is a great way to make it easy for all involved. 
Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I downloaded a song from the service this week, and I was so impressed with how easy it worked. It was way easier than some of the other ones I've used. So, yeah. Um, and so I think our last topic today is just going to be what the job of labels may be in 2014 and onward. I was asked that question by a friend at uh, a label that is pretty well known, and I I wanted to respond right away and just kind of you know, dash off my thoughts, but then I actually sat on it for a week because I couldn't really come up with a succinct answer in just a minute. Um, and I think it's, I think it's changed a lot. Um, obviously 10 years ago, uh, labels were for everyone. And then we sort of got into this period of time, I think where there's sort of a movement against labels where everyone wanted to just be on their own, whether they knew how to or not, there was this sort of movement of we don't need a record label. Record labels are dumb. But I think it's sort of swung around again. And we can, of course, have different opinions on this. But for me, I think it's sort of swung around again where I would much have, I would much rather have a label than not unless my band is something like brand new where there's a cult fan base where, you know, you're, you're, the people in your band either have this uh, personality where they can command fans uh, or, or that, you know, they're great artists in their own right, and they can all take sort of their own role in running this record label of theirs, um, or just, you know, independently doing things. I, I think labels are really important now. Um, but what what was your sort of initial reaction to what, what the job is in 2014? Um, well, I think, like, you know, I guess we kind of, like, it's two, we're two subjects. Like, you know, the one thing I think that's really interesting is, is like, you know, you can you go Macklemore as like you know some of the people I've been hearing say like in this genre. Like when we're talking about punk these days, it's with you kind of need that label to bolster you at first. And sure, you can go where Circa and Data Remember and Coheed have all gone with like the self-releasing in recent years and teaming up with a distributor and like in whatever capacity, but. You needed a label to get that footing in this genre. And, like, I do think that's the one thing is that bands can't get, um, in this genre in particular, they can't go Macklemore and be the biggest band in the scene or even get to be one of the bigger bands in the scene without some help from a label at some point, which is a lot different than indie. Like, last week we were talking about um, this artist I'm really into, Jay Paul, and now while he's signed to XL, like, you know, the guy can get thousands of downloads off of just a um, leaked Bandcamp account that's on Torrents, and, like, you see a lot of bands who can get a huge buzz without any label now in the indie world, but that still hasn't transformed over to the pop-punk world. Yeah, and to me, there are, like you said, there are just a lot of different sides. Like, what do you want your label to do? For Cirque or Survive... Like they went independent because they could, you know, Anthony Green by himself has this aura around fans that he just, it's just controlling, right? Oh, and, so and it's even just, just musicians, like, you know, as musicians who come into my studio, people worship and hang on every note that that band's going to do. Um, and they're very, very invested in following that band because they want new music from them. Whereas like, you know, when you're a new band, you don't have that. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's so very important uh, in my mind to sort of get a helping hand and foundation, hopefully from a like-minded label in terms of both sound and, and audience. And I think a label like Run For Cover is doing that really, really well right now where 
you know, mo- they let's take modern baseball for example. They signed modern baseball. It fit in perfectly with the aesthetic of where the label was in February of 2013. A year later, you know, they're their top three bands size-wise on Run For Cover, and the dynamic is just so perfect because Run For Cover itself as a label has a a strong identity. And I think a lot of the issue five or eight years ago was that all of these bands in the, you know, quote-unquote scene were not on small labels. They were on, they were on major labels. And, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have an identity on a major label. A Hopeless has an identity. A Rise does. A Fearless does to an extent, right? But... Once you get the size above that, there's no identity for the labels because they can't because they have, you know, both Kesha and Hit the Lights, you know, and it's like, how do yeah. you you can't make that work? It so that that makes it be more on the band to create and fuel their own personality rather than helping having a helping hand from the label. Uh, agreed, and you know, I think that that's part of the thing is like you know, people do look at label labels rosters and look for things and now what's even more interesting is now that labels are the people who um have the youtube channel that streams down everything that they do fans are subscribing to the youtube channel and then they see you know okay rise records put this up let me see if this is one of rise's pop punk bands or one of their swoop care deep v uh rise core bands and you check it out, and, you know, if it's the type of thing you want, you hear it, and that has a huge aggregating power. Like, you know, as a punk kid of the 90s, you know, when Epitaph would put out a punkorama, or Fat would put out a fat music for fat people, Go-Kart, we would put out this, these comps called Go-Kart versus the Corporate Giant. It was a certain style of music, and you knew that would aggregate the power of it. But, you know, one of the things to also talk about the medium between this is, like, what we did with Man Overboard, like, you know, like when it became that we were going to sign to Rise, I kind of insisted to the band that we had to have a label. And one of the things we did with that label and like the podcast we did is we tried to do that same 90s curation thing of like, here's a bunch of bands that you would like if you like our band. And we would all get stronger through doing that thing. And, you know, I think that there's a thing is that you know, if you're doing this smart, I think the actual smart way to do this is you should be a band with your own label and you should be a band with your label. Put out some smaller releases on your own label. Do an acoustic EP on your label and make some serious profits off of that while your um, larger indie label that you're signed to does your bigger releases and put, puts your stuff out there. Yeah, and so I spoke with my friend that asked me this question and a lot of the answers he was getting from sort of managers and uh, bands on his label were that, you know, they ranged from labels should just be my bank account to, uh, you know, to all various other things. And that's that's the interesting thing, right? There are so many different parties involved in a record label. There's the consumer, there's the fan that, the fan just wants the label to have great music and cool pre-order packages and good prices and, and things like that. Um, but the manager wants just more resources. What do you mean you can't be doing more? There's always more to do. Yes, give me your check. Also, please pay me royalties, you know? And then mm-hmm. and then there's the band. The band just wants the band just wants to grow. You know, the band wants a lot of things, but at the end oh. of the day, the band kind of just wants to grow. Yeah. Um, and so, but you know, as the label, you're you get pulled in all these kinds of directions when you ask a when you ask a question like that. And 
you know, I, th- I think it's really inter- interesting. The answer I gave to my friend was somewhere along the lines of, I think there's two different kinds of labels. There's the label like run for cover and there's the label like hopeless. Um, I think it's the job of run for cover to sort of develop and grow a two things. One, the bands, but also two, a music scene. I think yeah. run for cover at this time and, you know, and to an extent, no sleep and top shelf, but a little less so are, they're cultivating sort of the minds and directions that music fans are going in. And, you know, of course we saw this however many years ago with drive through and saddle Creek yes. probably as the best two examples and an early victory as well. Sure. Um, you know, they were cultivating sort of this direction and even like you were saying, punkarama and, and all that stuff with epitaph and fat. Yeah. Revol- or, or to take it even further back, SST records, discord records. Like, yeah. All, this is not a new labels, thing. Though. This yeah. is not a new thing, but these la- smaller labels kind of were gone for a minute um, a few years ago. And it's now, you know, a lot of younger fans are, are finding a modern baseball and run for cover and then finding they're either going in two paths, right? They're going into like a citizen and turnover path or they're going into this pity sex and other world kind of yeah. direction. And that's really cool. Because the label is both developing its fans and kind of curating what those fans want. And it's much easier for them to decide on bands that they want to sign later. Um, yeah. So I think, that's, I think that's really exciting. Because myself, like I can almost pre-order anything from Run For Cover and I know I'm going to be happy. And that's, like, that's really heartwarming to know. It's the first time in my life uh, where I've ever been able to have that from a record label. And it's really cool. Um, but I think the answer is a lot different for when it comes to someone like Hopeless, Rise, or Fearless. Um, I think their job is kind of, one, to have bigger bands, of course, like a Newfound Glory or a Sleeping With Sirens or a you know, Mayday Parade. And I think their job is to be a lot cleaner. You know, a, a major la- uh, not a major label in the sense of like a universal, but a larger label like Hopeless. It's their job to... It's their job to sort of be the older guy, right? They need to represent sort of a cleaner cut. I don't want to say more educated, but just sort of a more developed culture of how they're doing a business. I don't think it's the job of a hopeless or a fearless to to have that same connection with a music fan as Run For Cover does. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I think that, that that's, that's a thing that also is always... Uh, president of the scene is that there's going to always be some labels that are like curating the coolest newest thing and it doesn't even need to be that, that they're a young or an old label like Revelation did a great job of this for many many years even though they were really you know I would say even into their past a decade point um, but like and you know some would argue Discord is still kind of doing the same thing even though the, it's a barely active label um, but like yeah, I mean, like, when we get into this thing of, two of, like, you know, what does a label do is there's a lot of mistakes that can be made. And what a label should be doing, too, is is making sure you don't make mistakes. Like, you know, you hire the wrong video guy, and all they do is they put a, they take $2,000 of yours, and they put a bot on your YouTube video, and then half those plays get deleted when YouTube refines their algorithm. You know, that's a waste of money, whereas, you know, the label might have now been through seven video promo people, and they know this is the one to go to that gets your video everywhere, or they know this is the public, this that gets you a premiere on Pitchfork, and, like, what you need to do 
for that stuff, and like they have refined strategies, and they have a system they can put you into, and they have connections to put you into it. And then there's also the thing of what does the label do? It has the trust that they'll come through for tour support for you. Like one of the bands that I kind of do a little, I don't want to say consulting, but I do some friendly advice to, like, you know, I, when your van gets broken into, they take care of it. When you need an ad in alternative press to get on a tour because part of getting on big tours is helping pitch in for the advertising budget, they're there for you. That's a, those are big things. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's so that's such a potentially nice thing when you're jumping from a smaller label to a larger label. Um, it's just really interesting. I I totally think that labels are very viable and very much needed today. Um, and I I don't think a band like Citizen or Modern Baseball or you know who, whomever could necessarily make the jumps that we're seeing bands make today. And I think we'll talk about this a lot as the podcast goes on. Is that um, even compared to two or three years ago, bands now growing um, are making such larger steps quickly. And I think well-deserved and they're yep. touring smarter and they're getting better opportunities because these labels are now establishing that they can go for it with these bands. You know, uh, Run For Cover is pressing 10,000 copies of the new Tiger's Jaw record. And that is insane to us. It, yeah. Like nothing like that would have happened, like would have even, you would have asked Run For Cover three years ago and they would have just laughed, you know? But it's possible now. And that means bands growing to the next level is possible as well. So I, I think the job for, you know, the run for cover is to is to sustain and make those jumps while someone like Hopeless, like Hopeless has less of an identity because they have a band now like Newfound Glory while also having a band like Silverstein. But Hopeless also has smaller bands, right? Obviously, they have smaller yes. bands as well. And I think I think the... I think the, I don't want to say worst part, but potentially most detrimental thing about larger labels like an Epitaph or a Fearless or a Rise or a Hopeless is that a lot of these smaller bands kind of get caught up and kind of get lost in in it. Um, sure. You know, um, it's hard to put a ton of time on a smaller band on Rise when Sleeping With Sirens have the potential to sell 70,000 records in the first week. Same thing with a newfound glory compared to, let's just say, driver friendly and hopeless, or a bad religion is not a great example, but you know, uh, yeah, Epitaph have a lot of big bands, you know, and they have a lot of small bands too. I think Vieira, I guess, is a, a yeah. good example of a smaller band that kind of got looked over. Um, so how do you how do you balance that? Because you can't just hire more and more people, because then, yeah, you know, you're not you're not that's not a helpful thing. Uh, so I think there is a fair discussion to be have when it comes to larger labels about what should they do? Should we just be a bank account? Probably not. But no. there's a lot there's a lot of needs when you're a label that size and it's I see the push and pull from both like managers and fans and and also the record labels themselves. It's it's a really tough thing. Well, well here's here, here's another take on this though. Don't you think bands are able to get bigger now than they ever could without a label? Because, like, I looked at Real Friends, and obviously, you know, full disclosure, you do work with them. Um, but they got really big before they signed. I think Real like Friends is the real exception, though. <laughs> and it's, well, it's but, true. But, 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 but I don't want to use the word exception. They seem to be the one that's so far, at, like, they kind of flew the highest uh, towards the sun, if you want to say. Because, like, I, you know, so, like, 
some of the strategy with Man Overboard we had was like that thing of like we were growing so well and so fast um, without a you know we had Run for Cover but Run for Cover wasn't what it was what it is today um, and we weren't on you know rise yet and so when we were getting offers from big labels it's like well we don't have to say yes because we're growing so well so who really cares and I think that's the thing is it's like Man Overboard hit a certain amount certain height and then real friends just hit a certain height and like you know i think we're going to keep seeing bands that keep eclipsing this thing of like whether we want to call it sound scan or how many people they can pack into a club or how many facebook likes you have even though i think that's a horrible metric like we're just going to keep seeing bands get bigger fan bases before labels jump on them right i mean it's been they really interesting with it's been really interesting with real friends just to see how they operate as a band uh they they very much care and again, I, I work with the band. It's they very much care about, um, just we want to make the fans happy. Uh, you know, they're they're very very conscious, not about necessarily. I mean, they're very smart about business too. But to them, it's they want the band to feel like a community to their fans, and that's really important to them. And that's why they waited to sign to a label for years after labels wanted to sign them. You know, it was all about just building this sort of community of fans so if and when they did decide to go to the label they wouldn't lose those fans or they wouldn't have to bank on getting fans from the label's other bands and it's it was really interesting they they waited and they waited and didn't hurt them it only helped and i think it only helped their community of fans as well and their touring and all of that but they did of course sign to a label and part of you know there are a lot of reasons to sign to a label but a lot of it was sort of well we like we want better distro you know so they're still yeah. Just something like that. There are all these things that established and even younger labels have that it's just hard for bands to get access to at a younger stage. And I do really think that, you know, I hope we see a band like Real Friends happen once a year where it grows and grows and grows and it seems to sort of defy some rules, right? But it's kind of tricky because at the end of the day, unless you have a really good person in your corner, a lot of these labels just still have uh, avenues that bands just don't have the access to yeah but you know what's interesting too about these avenues is is that the avenues the label only has are shrinking like distributions starting to matter less as record stores keep closing as best buy keeps shrinking shelves as cds die physical distribution would be less and less of a thing so that's one less asset you know a lot of bands don't realize like you know hip video promo who does like the best uh video promo in the business or let's talk about like some of the big publicity places like earshot you can hire those as a band not on a label and you can get the same publicity and say some of the same opportunities that a lot of these labels have if you have deep pockets enough to pay for your co-op for a big tour you might be able to get that and just have like you know one of the other things to say though is real friends had a really great management system so that helped a lot too and yeah how long, did, how long is so important yeah and that's the thing is they do have, uh, they did have other ingredients that weren't a label. You know, Man Overboard, when we did it, we had a great booking agent in Matt Pike. We did have a label with, with Run for Cover, even if it wasn't as big then and couldn't afford to take out a humongous ad at that time, whereas they can now. Um, and, you know, obviously I was managing them. I think there's a thing, though, that like more and more people are going to get clued in and bands can get clued in that they can do some of this themselves and it's not 
it's not the end of the world to be able to hire some of these people a la carte, and the label's not going to have as much of a head-up advantage as um, they used to have with this distribution thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree as well. I, I was talking with a friend, and there's sort of this, I just sort of mentioned, like, I think we saw sort of a small revolution of different things happening a few years ago, and now we're sort of settling in, and mm-hmm. uh, they're sort of all those changes or all those possibilities, whether it's with new technology or just different ideas are, are sort of now slowly branching out and becoming more matured processes on their own. And so I think we're still seeing a lot of really cool and interesting shifts that sort of benefit everyone potentially. And it's great. Um, yeah. I think it's great. Uh, and I, def- I definitely think that we are seeing, seeing the, the settling down. Like, you know, I think about it when I started blogging about the music and business five years ago, I'd be writing about tour analytics. And now that's a very basic thing, even though this has been around for five years. My, my space had an incredible tour analytic map of where your fans were. It was amazing. And, you know, but no one took advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, MySpace, MySpace is a great way to end any episode of a podcast. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, 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 so what have you been enjoying since we last spoke? I have been uh, listening a lot to uh, Intuit over its intersections. I have been on kind of a large, um, it's warm outside, let me listen to really sad music kick. Um, which I don't, that doesn't usually happen to me, but it is happening mm. to me right now. So between, between that and, uh, Manchester it's, orchestras. It's, it's, it's Cause your, your girlfriend's across the sea. You're yeah. Really you know, it's, it's rough. It's rough. So, you know, it's nice outside. I'm, I'm taking walks through Penn's empty, empty campus and just listening to really sad music. So I just, I just across the board, I recommend sad music right now. Uh, what, what about you? Uh, I haven't been listening to it, but, but uh, I was on, a podcast called Pop Cultivation this week, and I listened to a bunch of the back episodes of that, and that's a really great podcast that I highly recommend. It has really diverse guests, everything from like having a guest who talks about depression to like interviewing a bunch of guys who run a hipster barber shop. There's really cool and interesting interviews on there. Um, and I also just finished the book Difficult Men, which is about the guys who wrote The Wire, The Sopranos, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad. Oh, that um, sounds good. Yeah, I, I have to say it was one of the best books I've read in a while. It just really goes into some insider baseball onto just the creative processes and personalities that made these shows so good. And then you also just get great stories about how James Gandolfini would be like, I'm not ready to play this part yet and just disappear for two days while they have helicopters rented. And they're just like, well, got to deal with it. HBO. Um, yeah, it, it's it's an ama- it's one of the best books though I've read in a long time. Yeah, I guess while we're also talking about podcasts to recommend, I would say just since we're since we're going through this lovely process of seeing the hashtag emo revival twenty times a day, uh, <laughs> anyone that loves those bands should really check out a podcast called Washed Up Emo. Uh, my friend Tom Mullen uh, is the curator of that, and uh, his vision is really different for a podcast. He kind of wants to be a he kind of wants his guests, someone like Mike Kinsella or uh, Evan Weiss or, you know, singer Piebald and all these other bands, Frank Turner and so on and so on, uh, to sort of look back for someone in 10 years who finds out about American football 10 years later to, um, 10 years later than now even, to sort of listen back and find this history guide. So if you really uh, love anything that you think could uh, work under the name washed up emo i would just highly recommend listening to that uh it's a great way to just sort of 
listen to your favorite bands talk about the days when you wish you were 15, but you were actually three. Um, <laughs> and that's me. That, that was how I described me. And I was 15, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. maybe even 18 or 19. Yeah. Uh, well, great. Very Thank- cool. Yeah. Uh, thank everyone for listening. Uh, you can find out more about Off the Record at offtherecord.fm. Jesse is on Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Zizarillo. Uh, show notes are on our website. And a big thank you to uh, Limited Run and Card Included for sponsoring this episode of Off the Record.